So then he brought the letter to the king of Israel. And now this king of Israel, we believe, is Joram. He was the king at the time. He reigned from about 852 to 841 B.C. And so here's the letter that now Joram from Israel, he receives from Ben-Hadad II. And here's the letter. Now be advised, when this letter comes to you, that I have sent Naaman, my servant, to you, that you may heal him of his leprosy. All exclaiming, Welcome, everyone, and thank you for joining us. You're listening to Truth in Christ Radio, a Bible teaching radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Rochester with senior pastor and teacher, Rob Kellogg. Our scripture today says, I have sent Naaman my servant to you that you may heal him of his leprosy. When the king of Israel, Jehoram, read the letter, he was understandably upset. First, it was obviously out of his power to heal Naaman's leprosy. Second, he had no relationship with the prophet of the God who did have the power to heal. Maybe the king of Syria assumed that the king of Israel was on a much better relationship with Elijah than he really was. It's easy for others to assume that we have a better relationship with God than we really do. Now let's join Pastor Rob's teaching, already in progress. And God, thank God for his Holy Spirit. So glad he saves me. He saved he saved me and he saved you. Read the word of God and let it infect every party. Let it wash your soul like a heavenly dove bar. Pun intended, by the way. Dove. Yes, the dove bar. Just scrubbing me on the inside, cleaning up all the darkness, every area of my life. Will you let God do that tonight? Let him do it. But leprosy was under the skin and it spread. That way sometimes, completely infecting a person quietly, and then all of a sudden it just breaks out, just like yeast. And that's why drug abuse and pornography, they usually starts off small and then grows to such horrific, monumental things. Drug use, you know, when you're a little kid, you start off with sniffing a little bit of Elmer's glue. Then you go up to, you know, the, um, you know, the super glue. That's a little bit more potent. You, spray, you get some of that, and wow, wow then that's not enough. Then you got to do marijuana. Then you got to do cocaine. And then you got to melt or freebase heroin and inject it in your arm. It's a stepping stone. Every single thing is a stepping stone. The same thing with pornography for young men. It's, it's, it's first a catalog, you know, a Sears catalog. And then next thing you know, it's an advertisement on a legitimate website. Even Fox News, you, you know, I don't understand why, why do they put that stuff on Fox News or any, anything, you know? It's like you can't even watch an article without seeing, you know, something off to the side. And then that's not enough. Then here I am dating myself. Then the magazines, the porn magazines, then all of a sudden that's not not quite enough. Then now, oh, every teenager has smartphones, even these young men. Do you know how pervasive pornography is amongst the teenagers, young preteens? It would shock all of us, even within the church. 
Many men in the church are hooked on pornography. Not every man, of course, but there are many who struggle. And even ladies now are engaging in this stuff. And folks, we have to take... And then pretty soon, that doesn't become enough. And then it's, gotta, then it's gonna lead to actions. And then we see these horrible things that happen in our culture. But a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Just a little bit of leaven... Just a little bit of leaven. Jesus in Matthew 16 said this. He was speaking of the sin of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He says, Now when his disciples had come to the other side of the Galilee, they had forgotten to take bread. And then Jesus said to them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, Is it because we've taken no bread? But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, Oh, you of little faith. Why do you reason among yourselves because you have brought no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves and the 5,000 and how many baskets you took up? Nor of the seven loaves and the 4,000 on the other occasion and how many large baskets you took up? How is it that you do not understand that I don't speak to you concerning bread, but to be aware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Then they understood that he did not... Tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and Sadducees. The doctrine of the leaven, it it was the sin of the Pharisees and the scribes and and the Sadducees. They had all the right words to say. They were teaching the right things most of the time, but the big difference is they wouldn't do them. They would expect everybody else to do them, and they stayed in their ivory towers, you know, with their robes looking down with a pious pucker on their face. The leaven. Paul speaking to the Corinthians. He spoke to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and you can read it yourself, but in the first eight verses, but I'll just start with verse 6. He says, you're glorying. They were glorying in some of the liberties which they had taken that they thought that they had in Christ, but now their liberty was going a little too far. They were allowing it to go a little too far, and so Paul takes them to task with it. He says, your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Just a little bit of yeast, a little bit of leprosy. It's not content. It it has to grow. Therefore, per out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you have truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Going back to our text now, in verse 2, he says, And the Syrian had gone out, as the Syrians gone on in raids, they had brought back this captive young girl from the Israel, and she waited on Naaman's life. And then in verse 3, it says, She said to her mistress, If only my master were, uh, were with the prophet who was in Samaria, for he would um, heal him of his leprosy. And I think about this too. What a wonderful young lady. Here she is, held captive against her will, away from her mother and father, away from her homeland, and she's still willing to testify of God's goodness. You don't sense like any bitterness in her, you know, because if I was her and I was taken captive out of my house and I found out that Naaman was suffering from leprosy, I'd be like, (laughs) you're getting yours, pal. Right? But notice the love of God here just overwhelming this young Jewish girl. And she wasn't content to just keep it to herself. She's like, I know. And I'm sure they treated her well. 
But she says, you know what? I know that God can heal him. And I know the man who could do it. And so the king of Syria, this was probably Ben-Hadad II. He said, go now and I'll send a letter to the king of Israel. So he departed with him and he took all this money, this 10 talents of silver. So this 10 talents of silver is somewhere between 750 to 920 pounds of silver. And then five shekels of gold, this is somewhere between 150 to 184 pounds of gold. And I'll use the smaller of those two estimates so you can understand how much money this is that the king of Syria is going to bring to Elisha the prophet to heal this man. As of today, silver was $18.67 an ounce. According to the math, that would be about $224,040 of silver and as of today, gold was $1,613 an ounce. That would be around $3,871,200. You put that all together and you're looking at close to 4 or $5 million. Think of that. <laughs> so then he brought the letter to the king of Israel. And now this king of Israel, we believe, is Joram. He was the king at the time. He reigned from about 852 to 841 B.C., and so here's the letter that now Joram from Israel, he receives from Ben-Hadad II, and here is the letter. Now be advised, when this letter comes to you, that I have sent Naaman, my servant, to you, that you may heal him of his leprosy. <laughs> and the king is going, what? Am I a god that I can heal anybody? I can't do anything. It seems a little interesting to me, seeing that the king of Israel wasn't the man who was uh, originally, um, you know, you wonder... The motivation of the king of Syria to make a statement like that. And certainly Joram, the king of Israel, took it as a provocation. You're provoking me because you know I can't, I can't heal. I can't heal anybody. Neither you can you, by, by the way, uh, Mr. You know, Hadad, who named your name after your, the god that you serve, the false god. I'm not sure of the motive of the king of Syria. It could be that it was an indirect indictment against the king of Israel because he was an idol worshiper just like he was and basically saying, look, I can't heal him and you know, maybe your God can too, <laughs> tongue in cheek. But someone said that one of your prophets could heal. And he may have sent the letter just in a, in a, in a state of order uh, because... He was the king over that area, so maybe he sent the letter to Joram because he knew that Elisha was in the same capital city in Samaria as the king was. Maybe it was just a question of order. You know, why would he send all of this letter to someone else when it should probably go to the king first so that he can direct it where it needs to go? We don't really know. But notice that it happened when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes. Am I able to do it? And so it was. When Elisha had heard about this, that the king had tore his clothes, he said to the king, why have you torn your clothes? Please let him come to me and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. And I find this interesting too because Elisha hears of the king of Israel's conundrum and then he comes to his aid. You know, this godly man comes to the aid of an ungodly king not to glorify the king of Israel but to glorify God. And see, that's what a, a real prophet will do. He won't glorify himself. He won't, uh, he won't take the glory or put the glory on any one man. The glory will always go to God. 
Because Elisha was not a man pleaser. He was not trying to earn brownie points with the king. He had a heart for God, first and foremost. Then Nahum, in verse 9, went with his horses and chariot, and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. And I find this interesting, too, because if you think about it, the, the government of Syria could do nothing. And I want you to put this in our vernacular today, and in our setting in America. The kingdom, the government of Syria could not heal this man. The kingdom of Israel, the northern ten tribes, he's like, I can't heal, I can't do anything. And so these two governments are like, we can't do anything. And then they come to a poor man in his house, a servant of God. Would the God that our leaders today would find men of reputation in the church and say, what do we got to do to turn this around? What have we got to do to turn this country around? Repent. (laughs) That's the first place. So they come to this man of God. And I love this because the people of God, the Jews and the church, will one day be glorified before the whole world when we are in the millennial reign of Christ. They look at us narrowly now thinking, boy, you're just the scourge of the earth. You're the problem, you conservative fundamentals, you believers in Jesus, you constitutional republicans or Democrat, whatever you want to call it, you know, you guys are the problem. And yet, there's coming a day, folks, when God's going to glorify his people. He will be glorified first and foremost, but he's going to give us, he's going to glorify, he's going to make us, the Jews and the Gentiles, the church of Jesus Christ, we will be held in honor in that day. But not now, but in that day. So hang in there. Verse 10, it says, And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash. I love this. He doesn't even get out of his house. He's, you know, and again, I, when, I, when I read this, it reminds me of, of and I, I don't want to embarrass him, but it reminds me of Pastor Bill Gallatin. If you, don't, if you know Pastor Bill Gallatin at all from Calvary the Finger Lakes, his son is now um, overseeing the church there. But Pastor Bill is just one of these guys. Kind of reminds me of what Elisha did here. He just says, didn't even get out of his house. I just go wash in the Jordan seven times. Just dip himself seven times. He doesn't go out. He's not thrilled by the fact that this important man from a very important land is standing outside of his doors with his entourage and this whole thing of mess of gold and garments and silver. He's like, I don't care about that stuff. Just tell him to do that and he'll be healed. Very simple, nonchalant. It kind of reminds me of Pastor Bill in that way. He's just that kind of, that kind of guy. But notice, even though he struggled with believing it, Naaman, he would, that, that whether it would do any good or not, he finally did it, and the Lord blessed and healed him. It reminds me in Mark chapter 9 where the, the man um, 
you know, had a son who was possessed by a devil foaming at the mouth, and he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood, and often he's thrown him into the fire and water to destroy him. But then the man says, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. And here this man, Naaman, had to believe. He had to act on obedience before God would do anything for him. Notice it wasn't even, I mean, there may have been a mustard seed of faith in in Naaman, but he was a pagan idolater. He just wanted to be healed, and he wanted to pay for it too because his heart wasn't right, and he didn't know any better. But God saw something in this man, and he had to act in obedience before God would heal him. If he would have dipped in six times and says, you know what, I'm done with this, God would say, well, you're not going to be healed. It's that simple. What would you do, how far would you go if God says to you, I want you to do this specifically, would you do it? I'd like to think that we would all say, yes, Lord, if you told me to do something specifically and I knew it was you, I would do it. Even if I don't understand, even if I, even if my my faith is just not quite there yet, would you do it? And this man did it. It's further interesting that it was seven, seven times, not six times the number of man, but seven times the number of perfection and completion. Because when God was going to do this, it was going to be a complete and perfect healing. But obedience, obedience was critical. You remember that even Saul or Samuel told Saul, he says, do you not, um, what did he say? Uh, And this is in 1 Samuel chapter 15. Samuel said to Saul, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed or to obey than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Are you willing to do it? But Naaman, verse 11, notice he became furious, went away and said, Indeed, I said to myself, he will surely come out to me and stand before me and hold out the staff and and throw some pixie dust on me and... And all of a sudden, all this, you know, this something would happen, and then everybody would get it on video, and they would upload it on TikTok. You know, I mean, none of that was happening. And he was expecting something big. I want to see something. I want bells and whistles. Come on. I need something to help me out here. Help me out here. And Elisha says, no, just go dip in the Jordan seven times. And notice... <laughs> imagine the expectation that Elisha had upon himself? Can you imagine the temptation? I'm serious. Put yourself in his sandals. Here is a very significant man outside your door waiting for you to come outside with a whole mess of gold and silver. More than, I mean, he would never have to do anything ever again. He could literally go and build a house on the Dead Sea and, or better yet, in the Galilee. It's a much nicer place. And, and just live there forever and not do anything else. He'd sit back and and chill out. But he doesn't do it. Think of, the, think of the, the temptation that would have been so great 
to accept the money and the gifts and the glory, but he didn't touch any of it. And Naaman, because he was so used to people being the, people being the focus of anything supernatural, he wanted to see something. He wanted to see it happening. Herod did the same thing with Jesus. In Luke 2, it tells us that when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad for he had desired for a long time to see him because he had heard many things about him and he had hoped to see some miracle done by him. Oh, just, you know, pull the rabbit out of the hat. I just want to see it one more time. You know, and Jesus would not be used as some kind of side act. And neither would Elisha because the same spirit who was in Jesus Christ was the same spirit that was governing the life of Elisha. I'm not going to do it. The carnal man always wants the show. Elisha wouldn't play the game. He simply told him what to do. And I love this, the wonderful nature and character of God, how he even takes this wicked man and is willing to help him. The Bible says that he causes his son to rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. See, that's the God we serve. See, you and I, we, we think wrongly so often because when we think of wicked people, we, we, just, we, we only feel the, the righteous indignation of God when actuality, I think God's uh, indignation is, is very long in coming and God is willing to be patient and wait and wait and wait and wait. And yes, there is a time when he will judge, but God is so gracious. He wants people to live. It's not his will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He doesn't delight in the death of man. He'd rather that the man would repent and live. God is a God of the living, not of the dead. Right? Can I get an amen in the house? Yeah, it's true. But notice verse 12. And so Naaman is like, are not the Abana and the, and the Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Now, these two rivers, the Abana is the modern-day Barada River. And if you were to look at a map of Israel, you know, there's the Sea of Galilee up here, and then the Jordan River, and then the Dead Sea. Well, right up here is Mount Hermon, and then over here is Damascus. And there is rivers, these two rivers, the Abana would come down from Mount Hermon, Hermon and go all the way into Damascus, right through the the city and this other, the far part of the river would go right to the south of Damascus. And this water is ice water coming from the snow capped mountain of Hermon. Yes, even in the middle of summer, and I've been there, you can look up and it's 85 degrees outside, and you look up and you can see snow on the top of Mount Hermon. I've seen it. And I'm in shorts and a, in a, in a, in a shirt. You remember, Kathy, recently? She saw as we stood on Mount Arbel on a clear day and we could see Mount Hermon in the distance, the snow capped, and that water would come down just pure and cold and crystal clear. Oh my goodness, the water was beautiful. It is beautiful. But then, think of the Jordan Valley. Now it's got to go from Mount Hermon all the way down the upper Jordan into the Galilee, down through the lower Jordan. By that time, it becomes so murky and muddy looking. Even today, the Jordan River is kind of murky and muddy. And so Naaman's going, are you kidding me? Couldn't he have just texted me while I was back in Damascus and say, hey, go to the, go to the um, you know, Abana River and wash yourself? It's a clean water. It certainly makes sense, right? No. Drive about 100 miles southeast and dip yourself in a muddy water. What? 
Are you going to do it? He did it. He did it, even at the exhortation of his servants. Wouldn't you have done much greater things if he would have asked you to do it? Why can't you just dip yourself and swallow your pride? Okay, but he did it. That's the end of our lesson for today, but please join us next time as Pastor Rob continues our study in the book of 2 Kings. Calvary Chapel of Rochester is located at 2503 Browncroft Boulevard, Rochester, New York, 14625. You can reach us at our church office between 9 a.m. and 4 p.m. Monday through Friday at area code 585-586-3140. If you would like to have an audio CD of today's message mailed to you in its unedited form, simply mention today's date when contacting our church office you can also contact us via the web by logging on to www.calvaryrochester.com. There you will be able to access a number of useful things such as information concerning our beliefs, our ministries, contact information, our location, service times, and much more. You can also download or listen to the radio and sanctuary messages free of charge from the teachings link at the top of the page. To listen to Calvary Chapel of Rochester's sanctuary messages or Truth in Christ Radio on your mobile device, just subscribe to both through Google Podcast or Apple Podcast. You're also invited to join us on Sunday and Thursdays through live streaming of our services and Bible studies. Just click on the online services link on the website. We're so glad that you could join us today. And if there is any way that we can bless you with your walk with Jesus Christ, please don't hesitate to call our church office. Remember, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And for this cause, I have come into the world that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. May God bless you in abundance today as you walk with him. And until next time, this has been Truth in Christ.